And that was when the whole thing started to kind of crumble. And I had to realize that my own opposition to saturated fat was because of the findings from artificial models where we were explicitly infusing or directly treating saturated fat into these situations. And that is not the same as a human eating saturated fat. Those two, those two, that is not analogous. That is not a fair comparison. And so I had to not only realize that flaw in my own findings, um, but I also had to then be open-minded to what was happening from the whole human physiological perspective. Hey friends, this is Jeffrey Wu here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the HVMN podcast. One topic that's come up often in our 100 plus episodes of the podcast is insulin resistance. A growing body of data suggests that insulin is an important metabolic driver behind diseases like diabetes, neurological conditions like Alzheimer's, and even some forms of cancer. Today, I speak with Dr. Benjamin Bickman. He's a professor at BYU who's an expert in insulin and ketosis. He also personally practices a low-carb lifestyle, and we nerd out about different dietary, fasting, and exercise routines. Ben and I discuss the role of social media for science, what true physiological insulin resistance means, nuances of ketosis and how ketones are metabolized, and some of the debate between the calories in, calories out versus the carbohydrate insulin model for obesity. Hey there listeners, Dr. Brianna Stubbs here. By visiting www.hvmn.com forward slash pod, you can get 15% off our HVMN performance supplements line, a selection of supplements that targets the essentials of energy, focus, memory, sleep, brain health, and metabolism. It's a well-rounded nootropic kit that's meant for anyone looking to take their performance and well-being to the next level. Of course, make sure you're on top of the fundamentals, sleep, nutrition, exercise. There's a good chance you can get to 90% of where you want by optimizing the basics first. HVMN performance supplements can aid you in getting that remaining 10% from human to superhuman. The link to the offer, www.hvmn.com forward slash pod is included in the show notes. As a business-run podcast, this is the best way to directly support the show and our work. Of course, writing reviews and sharing the show with your friends are just as appreciated. Without further ado, enjoy this week's episode of the HVMN podcast. Professor Ben Bickman, great to have you on the program. Hey, Jeffrey, thanks so much for the invitation. I'm delighted. I think there's a lot of ways we could go about the conversation here. Obviously, you're a well-known researcher in the field of ketosis, ketones, all things low carb and, and all of that. And I think one of the ways that I want to just start off the conversation is that I see as one of the most prolific communicators on Twitter, posting science papers and communicating to sort of the average population. And perhaps the way it started off is what do you think the role of social media is in this new world of academic research? And why have you adopted that channel as a communication platform? That's a great question. And it's relevant because I was increasingly frustrated, especially as a scientist who was studying something that people cared about. It is relevant that it's my great fortune to study something that people care about. You know, I'm in a hallway at BYU of scientists who study really neat stuff, but not a lot of people care, you know, about much of what life scientists study. And through just a series of fortunate accidents in a way, my research interests focused more and more on insulin and insulin resistance. And mind you, it's kind of funny the way you mentioned that I'm sort of a ketone scientist. Even that is because I still am really at my heart an insulin guy. Mm. And that the two are so connected 
that it was just a logical progression for me and my research interests to get into that realm of ketones. But again, the foundation was and always has been my interest in insulin and its relevance in disease, in the origins of most chronic non-infectious diseases. But specifically to your question with regards to social media, my good fortune to study something that most people care about. And yet within academia, so much of what we publish stays in this small little, very insular world. You know, I'll publish a paper. The only one who ever sees it is these 10 other scientists. And I'm the only one who ever sees their stuff, you know, and we go to an academic meeting and give a talk. And it's generally the same people just nodding along to the same kind of information we already generally know about. And I thought, The more I would go and give a talk somewhere, whether it was a grand rounds talk at a clinic or hospital or whether it was to a public, like a rotary club within a nearby city or something, people cared about this. And I thought, how can I share this outside of the conventional methods, outside of my own classroom or outside of my own manuscripts? So social media, of course, was the low-hanging fruit. And my aim there became not to promote my own ideas, but to objectively share the most relevant research in real time. As a paper would get published, if it seemed to be relevant in this metabolic insulin ketone context that so many people care about and, and that I care about as a scientist, I thought this is an easy way to share it. So sharing a little kind of snapshot of the abstract often with some sort of one or two sentence description of the study to make it very palatable for the user or the person who would see it. That became something I was interested in and have continued to do. So really, it was just a method to disseminate the latest, most relevant research, just so people could stay informed, frankly, and not feel like they have to devote time on PubMed or Google Scholar every day and finding these things on their own. I think one of the most important pillars of academics is How do you communicate this in a way that's practical for normal people? Because a lot of the funding bodies are government funded or military funded or nonprofit funded. And that requires buy-in and momentum from everyday people. Otherwise, we don't want to be in a world where academics are just some scholars in in an ivory tower that are not doing some real stuff. And I think that's kind of the critique from folks that don't quite understand what valuable work researchers are working on. But I also see on Twitter, and you probably have seen this ancillary to like the low carb ketogenic diet versus the carb diet. I guess it's like a calories in, calories out folks versus the metabolic advantage of ketosis folks. There's also that dark side of social media where there's almost a holy religious war of, oh yeah, is keto the best thing ever? Or keto the worst thing ever? Curious to get your take on the polarization side of social media and how that's impacted, or does that impact how you think about science communication? It is relevant to note that there are, even within this few minutes of conversation we've talked about, there is that lurking kind of war in a way. And hopefully it's not a war, but certainly a war of, of words in a way. But there, this sentiment that the metabolic plagues of society, you know, obesity being the obvious aspect of that, are, is it purely a function of calories in, calories out, this, this kind of perfect thermodynamic model? And then there's others who would say, well, no, it's an endocrine, it's a hormone-driven model. And, and mind you, the ketone, I would submit the ketone aspect falls under that. To me, my very first step into a non-academic meeting was speaking at Low Carb Breckenridge two years ago, and it was to touch on that very topic which is that my sentiment is that the endocrine model of obesity actually incorporates 
the thermodynamic model of obesity insofar as especially relevant with David Ludwig's paper just published a couple weeks ago. When you put a human into a condition where insulin is low, which would also mean ketones are high, that's going to be a consequence of low insulin, you are increasing metabolic rate. And that's what David Ludwig's paper showed. And Kevin Hall's paper showed that too, oddly, a couple years ago, that the humans in ketosis had significantly higher metabolic rate. And my lab's research over the past two years, we've just been waiting to publish this till we had more human data. But we have data from adipose cells, we have data from rodents, and now from humans, where we're taking abdominal subcutaneous fat biopsies of humans in and out of ketosis. The ketones are stimulating the metabolic rate in fat tissue. So the fact there is when we try to balance how can the endocrine theory, I mean, how can I be justified in saying the endocrine theory of obesity and that is that hormones control fuel use and thus have a strong handle, basically control the levers of obesity, that encompasses the endocrine, uh, the caloric or thermodynamic model because we introduce a new aspect of calorie expenditure. In fact, when you're in ketosis, I would submit you introduce two new aspects of caloric expenditure in that if ketones are elevated, you are one, increasing metabolic rate by enhancing what's called mitochondrial uncoupling in the adipose cells. And that's fascinating. And we can talk about that if you'd like, and you understand it, but you increase uncoupling, which means the the cell is basically wasting energy as heat which sounds bad, but it's favorable when it comes to body weight control. But then you also have the literal wasting of energy in the form of ketone derivatives that are exhaled or urinated or even eliminated through sweat in the form of acetone. Right. Yeah, you have this explicit elimination and someone would say, well, so what if you're breathing out or urinating or sweating out acetone? Well, the so what is where did that acetone come from? It came from fat. We are literally cleaving the fat molecule into little pieces through the process of beta oxidation. And in fact, it's happening so much when insulin is low, fat oxidation or fat burning is so high that we almost are burning more fat than we need. If you think about energy We should only be breaking down molecules or catabolism should only be matched, energetically speaking, with how much ATP we need. How much energy does a cell need to get the job done? All right, we need this much energy, so let's break down that much nutrient to get it. But in the case of low insulin, we just keep burning through the fat, and yet we've reached our ATP target. And so you could, I submit, the extra is the body saying, well, we're burning more fat than we need, so we're going to turn the excess into ketones because we have a way to get rid of it. And so we're mm-hmm. literally breathing out these little pieces of a fat molecule. And mind you, it doesn't account for a lot of energy, but it's still energy that must be considered. If the caloric proponents are so staunchly not giving any ground, that's fine. Let's just say, okay, the middle ground then is that we need to account for these two other methods of energy loss when hormones are, what I would say, in a state favorable to fat loss, which is low insulin, essentially, the increased metabolic rate from mitochondrial uncoupling and adipocytes and the acetone loss, which those are carbons that we're losing that could have been used as energy. We're not talking like carbon dioxide, which is the spent sign of energy, if you will, but they had the potential to be energy because it could have gone to acetone or it could have gone to beta-hydroxybutyrate. And then all it would have been if it was beta-hydroxybutyrate, one step back to acetoacetate, now you've got energy again that you can burn. So anyway, for me, it's not me trying to be diplomatic. It's me reconciling my own findings 
as a PhD in bioenergetics, which is the study of energy in an organism, and then this growing appreciation for the human evidence, especially that finds that if you're controlling insulin, you really do seem to have this flexibility with calories where you can have someone who's put on a diet, and this is multiple papers show this, they split the people up, you are on a calorie restricted low fat diet, you are on a calorie unrestricted low carb diet, and these people still lose more weight despite eating potentially two or 300 more calories a day. And that matters. We touched on a lot of different topics there. I want to talk about the metabolic advantage. I want to talk about mitochondrial uncoupling and acetone loss. And I think when people think about those subjects, I think they talk about it in this context of metabolic advantage. I want to unpack that a little bit because I think from a weight management perspective, mitochondrial uncoupling seems to be favorable. But I think from a performance perspective, do you want to be losing energy? And I think that's an interesting discussion to talk about. Because people always want to talk about, hey, take this product and it helps your mitochondria be more efficient. You know, you literally will hear that in an advertisement. And I'm thinking, well, if you want weight loss, that's the last thing you want. You actually don't want your mitochondria to be efficient because if your mitochondria and your fat cells, let's say, are perfectly efficient, they will go back to that idea of they will only use as much energy as they need. You know, and so they're never going to use any more. But if you have your adipocyte, your fat cells are inefficient, like I'm proposing happens and the evidence supports that ketones are inducing, well, then you're burning through energy like gangbusters and you're just wasting it as heat, which is fine. That means increased metabolic rate. But to your question, our data shows that the uncoupling that ketones induce in adipocytes, it does not happen in myocytes and muscle tissue. And we have this from isolated muscle cell cultures and rodents. In mm-hmm. fact, we published this earlier this year. We found that there was no change. In fact, if anything, the ATP production for every unit of oxygen used went up. This P to O ratio, the production of ATP per unit of oxygen consumed, went up as the muscle cell was fueled with beta hydroxybutyrate. And when we insulted the muscle cells, with molecules just to induce some kind of muscle cell damage, they were actually more resistant to damage and survived better in the uh. midst of this noxious stimulus. So what appears to happen, at least energetically, at the adipocyte does not happen in the muscle cell. And in the muscle cell, you in fact do have greater efficiency, whereas in contrast, in the adipocyte, you have this inefficiency. So metabolically speaking and performance-wise, it's a perfect situation. Yeah, I think that's like a level that I think now people don't get that nuance. I think you explained it quite well there. And then when I think about metabolic advantage, I oftentimes think about, if you remember, I believe the Beach paper in, I think, 96, showing that you increase the electron span between site one and site three of the electron transport chain, burning BHB versus glucose. And there was a sort of an increased delta mm-hmm. G of burning ATP as one of like the more primal ways of how you could talk about metabolic advantage. So yeah. I'm curious when people bandy about that term, what notions do you think about? What do you think are the dominant characteristics here? I mean, I think it was an interesting result that you said that you see mitochondrial uncoupling in adipose tissues, but not in myocytes, which is a kind of cool explanation of why you see enhanced performance and also enhanced weight loss where it's like, oh, you're just burning energy or wasting energy or that which could be used for a performance case? For me, I use the term a metabolic advantage to someone being in ketosis, what you just mentioned, uh, specifically the idea that to me, it's an advantage that you have calorically speaking where you don't have to ensure, all right, I ate 1600 calories today 
And as long as I expend more than 1600 then I'm going to be losing weight. What a horrible way to live. I don't know anyone who keeps that up long term. <laughs> you know, calorie yeah. counting is tedious to the point of insanity. So for me, the metabolic advantage, when I use that term, I state that in this sense that I mentioned and you've mentioned, which is you don't have to be counting every calorie you're getting in because you have this wiggle room. You have mm-hmm. this ability to be a little more liberal and to truly just eat until you're full as has been done in human clinical studies. I'm not making that up. They just tell them, eat as much as you want, just restrict your carbohydrates. That's what they've been told. I can think of three manuscripts off the top of my head where that was the explicit instructions. And the low-carb ad libitum eaters outperformed metabolically the calorie-restricted low-fat eaters. Right. That, to me, is a metabolic advantage. I feel like when you actually dive into the literature of someone like Kevin Hall at the NIH, who, who I would say is more in the school of calories in and calories out, I feel like there is some middle ground that people all could agree on, but I feel like on the Twitter sphere, it's just very polarized. Can we steel man the calorie-in, calorie-out arguments? Like, I think you mentioned Kevin Hall's paper a couple years ago. I think he saw a modest increase in metabolic rate, but for some reason he kind of hand waved that away as saying, oh, it's not significant and therefore calories are dominant and this keto story is is not super compelling. I don't mind that he or anyone came to the conclusion, but can we steel man that argument? In a way, I think we can say I'm comfortable saying calories matter insofar as this is energy that must be accounted for and there's no getting away from it. And my Mm -hmm. simple position is that And hormones, it would be adding this, and hormones drive caloric use. In other words, hormones dictate how the body uses energy. Is it storing it or is it expending it? And if it's expending it, are we considering all of the ways that it is expended? The uncoupling, which would, mind you, be that would be encompassed in someone measuring metabolic rate. And I would contend that any study that has shown increased metabolic rate in low insulin states, it is probably through this adipocyte uncoupling, and then also making sure we account for the wasted acetone, which again is breath, urine, and sweat. But this goes beyond David Ludwig's and Kevin Hall's papers. My initial interest in pursuing this hypothesis of insulin versus ketones in altering metabolic rate through brown fat was actually based on research from Joslin and Benedict. And so we're talking 100 years ago, these extensive studies into type 1 diabetics, they would see metabolic rate would be remarkably high in type 1 diabetics that were Mm. untreated. And what happens when insulin therapy was used, and this is in type 1 diabetics and in type 2 diabetics more recently, metabolic rate goes down. Crashes, yeah. Yeah, and so to me, it really fit, exactly. I would see these papers and I would think, could it be the ketones? And then I'd seen, I think it was one of Veach's manuscripts in rodents finding this enhanced uncoupling. And I thought, well, let's just kind of run with this idea and see how deep it goes. And sure enough, we have it in all three levels, isolated cells, rodent adipose and human adipose, increased expression of uncoupling and mitochondrial biogenesis related genes, likely due to this reduced insulin, that's part of it. And of course, powerfully the increased ketones, but you can't eliminate the insulin from this. We want to say, well, it's just the increased ketones. And until someone does a study where they're increasing insulin and giving them a ketone, like a ketone ester, we can't say that it's just the ketone because whether it's- You can't unpack it yet. You can't. It's conflated, right? It's ketogenic. (laughs) You're eating a ketogenic diet. So it's just like, okay, basically you're forcing high ketones, low insulin at the same time, but can we play it the opposite or can we play both at the same time? That may be a question to ask with the kind of birth of this widespread use of exogenous ketones. That may allow us 
to tease that apart and say, well, are the effects of ketones just because of the ketones themselves, or does this have to happen in a state of lowered insulin? And frankly, I bet without a doubt, insulin will inhibit those same genes that ketones are explicitly activating. And so I think there's going to be some kind of moderate middle ground in that context. Yeah, in the sense that when people ask me, can you replace a ketogenic diet with a ketone ester? It's like, uh, there's going to be an overlap on the indications that they can both treat but there's also different effects, right? With a ketogenic diet, the carb restriction is probably doing something that an exogenous ketone, like a ketone ester, is not doing and vice versa. Yeah, in fact, I would submit that I bet the most relevant, at least obvious application of that is going to be neurological disorders where we have certain neurological disorders that are linked to a glucose hypometabolism, whether mm-hmm. that's a result of insulin resistance or not. And, and it, to a degree, it probably is. But the neurons, as you know, and listeners undoubtedly know too, there are two fuel sources. It's glucose or ketones. Well, that's, that's margin. You can also have lactate and, and some oh, other, yeah, other things. Yep, so there's, true. but yes, I agree. Like the two dominant ones are glucose and ketones. When someone yeah. in a low carb state or they're taking ketones, let's say they're not low carb, but they're suddenly introducing this other fuel. Well, now the brain actually can use a fuel that maybe if they aren't able to restrict their diet to that degree to put themselves into ketosis through ketogenesis, that is an obvious application, even if they aren't low carb to the point of ketosis. I would submit the most obvious relevance of an exogenous ketone is the neurological benefit. And and, and who knows what else? Yeah. And that's something we hope to explore. I want to get back to the diet debates. I think it is just an interesting and applicable to almost everyone. And I feel like perhaps one reason why some of the folks on the calorie in calorie outside is that if you're eating just 5,000 calories of fat a day, you're probably not going to lose weight, right? So I think on the side of the keto crowd or the low carb crowd, I think everyone reasonable would realize that, yeah, calories matter at some point. If you're just eating, you know, 10,000 calories of fat a day, you're not going to lose weight because you have so much caloric intake. But I don't think anyone serious in the low carb keto space would be arguing you can eat ad infinitum fat and still lose weight, right? I certainly wouldn't say that. <laughs> Any of the people that I know Even the kind of most staunch endocrine theory of obesity individuals, I don't know. You know, there probably are some who would say you wouldn't, but man, uh, that'd be hard for me to reconcile. But uh, part of me, there's this kind of itch in my brain wondering whether someone's looked at that already and tried to force feed higher lipid. I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm wondering whether there's some old University of Minnesota studies that did that. For some reason, it, it seems like someone did. But nevertheless, yeah, my hope is that both sides are reasonable enough in a way. Like if, when you actually sit them down and remove the kind of polarizing binary environment of Twitter and you sit them down around a table, I think there's probably more common ground than not. I'd like to think. It feels that way when you read the literature. It feels like there's, there's, and they incorporate both and perhaps the difference is how they weight the factors. Do they think yeah. calories matter more? Do they think the, the endocrine system matters? And I think, yeah. I guess that's where the edge of science is. Okay, let's tease out the exact weighting of these factors. What I'd like to say is that, what I hope is that there's this, this teeter-totter of theories and no yeah. one is ever trying to force the one side down all the way. I myself lean more in favor of the endocrine theory simply because I believe the endocrine theory encompasses the caloric thermodynamic theory. Right. But that does mean I give credence to the thermodynamic model. I just think if we ignore the endocrine, then we are not considering a necessary aspect. I think you put it really nicely there and love to get that idea and notion out there because I think there is just 
both aspects make a lot of sense and how do we can reconcile this, right? It's yeah. kind of like quantum mechanics and relativity. How do we have this standard model of everything and a, perhaps of dietary nutrition? One thing that I've seen you post a lot about, and I think this will be interesting for a lot of our listeners who follow ketogenic diet or have been following carnivore diets, which has been a recent fad trend. We had a lot of the most popular carnivores on our podcast recently is does too much protein kick you out of ketosis? Yeah. And I think that's when something that I think a lot of the folks in the community just debate about. Too much protein, you get gluconeogenesis that raises sugar, you're going to get kicked out of ketosis. What is your opinion? What is your thought? What does the data tell us there? So, in fact, I thought so much about that, that that was the subject of one of the only other few talks I've ever given outside of academia. <laughs> because when I first started taking my steps into uh, low carb and, and ketones specifically, I was struck at how many people I considered were eating in a very bizarre way. And, and I, I joke, but, but it, it was based on real people I knew where they were basically in a day eating almost nothing but MCT oil because they were so determined to stay in ketosis. And I thought, what a bizarre way of eating when people are just drinking oil. And I thought, that is not healthy, and it's someone who's chasing ketones. And they were doing that because of their fear of protein and this idea that protein will kick them out of ketosis. It is so important to just appreciate the very basic biochemistry, which I believe is rational in a way that's quite pretty easy for people to nod along to. But gluconeogenesis, or the process of the liver taking carbons and turning them into glucose, that is not demand-driven. If it were you could have someone who's taking away protein shake and they would become dangerously hyperglycemic and have this potential of a hyperosmotic glucosuria where the, the glucose is so high for so much, you know, 220 milligrams per deciliter and above for so long that now it's spilling. Or so, so, so you mean supply driven. So like when you take away, it supply doesn't driven. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. can't push the gluconeogenesis into this hyperglycemic range. So that's one aspect of this. My contention that there is no need to fear protein and in addition to that, if someone is activating gluconeogenesis, you can't afford to have a substantial increase in insulin because insulin inhibits gluconeogenesis. And so the two ideas are in opposition to one another. If someone's taking protein, you can say, well, it's either going to increase the insulin or it's going to increase the gluconeogenesis. And they may say, well, wait, those are the same. No, they're not. If you're increasing insulin, you're inhibiting gluconeogenesis. The liver will potently smash down gluconeogenesis because it doesn't want to be created. Right, because insulin sucks down sugar, right? Yeah, it doesn't want yeah. to create glucose and release it into the blood. It wants to tell the liver and the muscle and other tissues to pull the glucose in. It wants to lower blood glucose, not increase blood glucose. So the way we reconcile all of this, and indeed the data supported, I encourage anyone to look at old papers from Roger Unger and Dennis McGeary to look at this, especially Roger Unger. If the person is taking a fairly large bolus of protein, like one gram per kilogram protein, if they are in a low carb or a fasted state, there is no significant increase in insulin. None. The mm -hmm. insulin just hums along like normal. And that's because if they're in a low carb or fasted state, they can't afford to stop gluconeogenesis. And so even mm -hmm. if the protein, and some of it is, some of it is used to create glucose, that's fine. Who cares? We need it. We do need glucose. Not because the brain needs it, I'm not going to say that, but we know there are cells like erythrocytes, red blood cells, that rely on glucose. To, they have a non-oxidative metabolism entirely. And so regardless of what cells may or may not need it, we have some that do need glucose. And so thank heavens it can happen. In fact, we need it that if you're not eating it, 
good thing we can make it. And if there was a substantial bump in insulin from eating protein, it would stop that process. And then the person faints or goes unconscious from, hypo, from genuine clinical hypoglycemia. So my response to that is there is no need to fear protein. Someone should continue to eat real food, including meat, which is high in protein, of course. And they don't need to fear, am I going to get kicked out of ketosis? And I think the keto carnivores are a good example a lot of them post their pictures before and after with ketones, although many of them get to the point of not caring about that. But I've seen enough do it. They don't get kicked out of ketosis when they eat a right. steak. They're still very much in ketosis. And that much steak, you know, Sean Baker should be dying from hyperglycemia. In <laughs> Amber, yeah. they should be dying from hyperglycemia. They're eating so much protein from their meat. And they are not only healthy, I would argue that they're quite remarkably healthy, frankly. Yeah, so I mean, there's the answer. Uh, <laughs> someone has to consider what insulin is going to do to gluconeogenesis. And you can't afford to have this insulin spike if you are truly carbohydrate restricted in your diet because you right. can't stop gluconeogenesis. And that means if insulin doesn't go up to, because it doesn't want to inhibit gluconeogenesis, it also isn't able to inhibit ketogenesis, which is right. why if someone's on a ketogenic, low-carb diet, the protein will not kick them out of ketosis. Where do you think that meme came from? I guess perhaps when people are eating a mixed diet with That's some carb and some protein, then maybe you're then conflating you a little bit of the carb and protein load together. It's yeah. taking people out of ketosis. Yeah, and, and but when we're talking about just protein and fat. That's right, yeah. yeah. And it's forgivable for people to make that conclusion that, oh, protein's always going to spike insulin and inhibit ketogenesis because when you add protein to a carbohydrate meal, you do enhance, you do get that additive insulin spike. And so I can see why we came to that conclusion in general, but we came to that conclusion despite the evidence that existed from decades ago refuted that idea that if you are in fact- yeah, That makes sense. That makes does, a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Because I think when I've been wearing a continuous glucose monitor, and I've just been thinking, like I will see mild sugar spikes when I'm eating- meat, but I'm also realizing that I'm oftentimes when I'm doing that, eating some salad, I might have some, a little bit of carbs in there. So it's not a perfect experiment just on a personal N equals one, right? Yeah, that's right. Even still, though, I wonder, did you ever measure ketones before and after and see a substantial change? When I was going on a carnivore diet, I, I didn't go that deep into measuring blood ketones twice Yeah, usually people step away from it. Yeah. I did a six-week block of doing twice a day finger sticks for six weeks on a ketogenic diet. And I never went full carnivore on that same block. I was thinking about doing that again. Yeah. But it just ends up being annoying when you're traveling and doing business. It's like hard to like just pull out like needles and stabbing yourself oh, yeah, over a business dinner you. or something. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think of carnivore? I think that's been interesting in terms of a fad diet that's definitely caught the attention of some mainstream media where people have been conflating it from a Silicon Valley bro diet to something tied with the alt-right. We had yeah, yeah. Michaela Peterson on the podcast, and I, I know that her and her father, Jordan yeah. Peterson, have been big carnivores. And I think some people have tied Jordan Peterson to alt-right and made this whole weird shenanigan. I'm fascinated by it. So Jordan Peterson, not to change the topic too wildly, I'm also from Alberta, just like he is. He's from Northern Alberta. I'm from Southern Alberta, but same kind of small little town. It's so funny for me that people lump him in alt-right because to me, it's almost sort of a tough love of parenting. Everything he's ever said, I think that's what my dad told. I, mean, I was raised by a dad. My mom died when we were all quite young. So it was very kind of dad heavy parental environment. And very loving, wonderful father, but also just 
pragmatic to the point that everything Jordan Peterson has said, that to me is just so intuitive, frankly, his lessons. But nevertheless, the fact that Jordan Peterson not only speaks such nuggets of wisdom, but is a carnivore, makes me think, hey, maybe there's something to it. Because Jordan Peterson, is, yeah. he's no dope. Yeah. And I suspect his daughter isn't either. Anyway, to your question explicitly, I'm fascinated by this rise of the carnivore diet. I'm fascinated by it. And what I appreciate about it is the simplicity. A part of me kind of envies just the true simplicity of such a diet where you can just tell yourself, I'm going to eat these things and nothing else. And I look at that and I think that really does. I mean, if you can commit to that simple idea, it, it is in a way just easier in a way than even a low carb diet because you're always with low carb, you're always kind of flirting with the carbohydrates, you know, you're flirting with them and how much couple of net carbs here. Can yeah, I squeeze yeah, exactly. by? Yeah, it just, you know. yeah, exactly. That's yeah. exactly it. And that's yeah. for me, the main appeal is that not that I am an anti vegetable kind of guy, but I've really appreciated some of the sentiments that have been revealed and expressed in, in social media around that and the relevance of vegetables. But I appreciate the simplicity of it, where there's just no question, this is what I'm eating. And so you eat it. It fascinates me. How about the fiber story, the phytonutrient story? Yeah. Uh, obviously, when you talk to carnivores, they're like, oh, maybe you don't need that much fiber. Maybe you actually don't want these phytonutrients. Maybe these are stimulating the re immune response, actually. To me, a lot of the discussion of fiber and even polyphenols are relevant to gut bacteria. That, to me, is the obvious application because they are used by gut bacteria and the fiber, I think it's nonsense to think dietary fiber is necessary for bowel movements. I think that is laughably silly. To me, I think it is as a fuel for bacteria. And, and even then you'd say, well, then so what? What do we need them for? To me, much of the benefit of bacteria, and now I am not a gut bacteria guy. To me, it's just a big black box. And when too many people speak with too much confidence about it, I get very skeptical because I don't think we yeah, really know too much. I agree. I think people make too broad claims on it. Yeah. What I will say is this, much of the benefit to me of gut bacteria is the production of short-chain fatty acids. That we have mm -hmm. the butyrate and the propionate, for example, that we just really don't get in any other way except the gut bacteria making it, and then that gets moved into the bloodstream. And we know these short-chain fatty acids are very beneficial signaling molecules for mitochondrial biogenesis. And mind you, even uncoupling in fat cells. And so to me, the polyphenols and the fiber, despite any other claims anyone makes, I like to think of it as those could be potential sources of short-chain fatty acids from the bacteria. But then even then, do we need those short-chain fatty acids? No, you do not need them. And could someone get the short-chain fatty acids in other ways? I actually deliberately drink a little bit of apple cider vinegar in water because I like that acetate, and that's a short-chain fatty acid. Mind mm. you, exogenous ketones are doing the same thing. In a way, acetoacetate is basically a short-chain fatty acid. Mind you, it's yeah. slightly altered structure, but even exogenous ketones kind of check the same box that, to me apple cider vinegar checks in that it's the source of these short chain carbons that are going to basically activate these same processes. But in someone who's eating a conventional standard American diet, I would vehemently say eat fiber. To me, there's little question that's going to help. But if you're going carnivore, then maybe you just don't need it as much. Can't get away with it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. And, and yeah. I am going to say maybe yeah. just because I only want to talk about science that I know is published. I hate making a claim. And I just don't, I don't think there's any study on that. 
I agree. I think let's be proper scientists here. I think we can speculate and give some hypotheses, but yeah, I yeah. think it's it just a uncharted territory. I think a lot of people are curious about. Again, I think hearing from you how you speculate about some of these more untapped areas is interesting to hear. Yeah. Another constant, I think this is more of an open area of debate and discussion is constant ketosis or cyclical ketosis. Is there trade-off benefits for one or the other? I think there's been some studies coming out of the Buck Institute looking at cyclical ketogenic diets that have shown just as much improved longevity as constant ketosis. Yeah. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. Do you have a specific preference? I imagine there's trade-offs and benefits for both types of protocols. I agree. I bet there are. I suspect whether there's a true benefit probably depends on the context. In other words, what is the person going for? If this is a person who needs to control a neurological disorder like seizures or even migraines, in fact, I think the very first publication looking at ketosis and migraines was published in 1910, but to remarkable effect where this study, in fact, is quite fascinating, not to go off on a tangent, but the physician noted, I think, like 12 patients and noted what happened from the moment they went into ketosis. And he actually adds this little note based with each subject. And it's fascinating to see. It would be something like had frequent migraines three times weekly for 10 years, experienced an immediate resolution upon entering ketosis and has mm. not had another since. You know, like this little blurb. And that is powerful stuff that you just don't really get in publications nowadays. And, right. and another one said had two migraines daily for, for 15 years and has experienced three in the following six months and has not had another since. You know, something like that. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. Nevertheless, back to my point, if someone's trying to control a neurological disorder like seizures or, say, migraines, then I think... I'd say don't mess around. You just stay in ketosis because you're probably going to trigger an event the moment you get out. And that does seem to be the case, at least for some. If someone's an athlete, then I don't know. I've kind of wavered on whether, you know, like Zach Bitter, this really kind of paradigm athlete, should he be stepping in and out of ketosis? You know, I guess the fact of the matter is I think he does train with some carbohydrate and does exceptionally well. So I'd say for him, in these maybe endurance athletes, maybe that helps. If someone is trying to really lose a lot of weight, I would argue all that's going to happen when they bump up their insulin is they're going to stop fatty acid oxidation for some period right. of time because that's what insulin does. However, I would say if someone is going to go in and take a glucose tolerance test in a clinic, they will probably be well served by doing a bit of cyclical ketosis with some carbs just to make sure they stay glucose tolerant. And having disclosed that, I worry that some people would say, well, wait a minute, that means they're also insulin resistant. Because so yeah. often, if you are glucose intolerant, that means you are insulin resistant. But I don't think that is the case in someone who's on a low-carb ketogenic diet. I think they do start to become somewhat less carb tolerant, at least for a period of time, but that's not the same as being insulin resistant. What I haven't seen, or if I have, I've forgotten, Give put someone into ketosis through a ketogenic diet, give them glucose. So often we just track the glucose. And yep, it might take them longer to clear the glucose because they've kind of become glucose intolerant. But I bet their insulin doesn't go up nearly as high as the other person. And so it's the seeming kind of mm. disconnect and uncoupling from insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance where you can be insulin sensitive and yet have induced this glucose intolerant state simply because of such a prolonged shift in fuel use. The person has been in such a fat burning mode for so long. All the enzymes shut down for glycolysis and it's optimized for fat burning. Yeah. 
there's almost this method of saying, well, I'm not using this pathway. I'm using this pathway. And so, oh, wait a minute. Now we got to use this one. And not only are we using it, but you just drank a 50 freaking grams of pure glucose. I mean, right. that's more than a little bit of pure glucose coming right into the system. I would suspect that's enough. I hate to use these kind of terms, but you can forgive me for it. Enough of a metabolic shock that there is this glucose intolerance. And I would argue that's right. not bad. If the person's not eating glucose, They've just clearly switched their body to fat oxidation. Why muck right. around with maintaining um, glycolytic processes when you're simply not using them? I submit that is not the same as insulin resistance. So when people want to say the ketogenic diet is causing insulin resistance, no, it's not. It's causing glucose intolerance. That's what the research shows. Those are not the same thing. And so I think if someone actually has to go in and they need to play the game of reaching typical clinical cutoffs, you probably ought to start cycling in some glucose maybe a week or two before just to make sure you pass that test so your doctor doesn't freak out. Or you just say to hell with the doctor yeah. and you say, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, but I'm not in yeah. one's position, so that is not medical <laughs> advice. You know, I'm a scientist for heaven's sakes. No one can listen to what I say. And I'm not a doctor, not a physician. We're touching upon a lot of like nuanced aspects of ketogenic diet, fasting, ketones, insulin, glucose. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that I don't think a lot of people have articulated is that when you're on a ketogenic diet or fasting for a long time, I've never heard this articulate in, in your way where it's glucose intolerance versus insulin resistance. Yeah. But people will say that cycling in glucose after a long period of a ketogenic diet or fasting, there will be a state of insulin resistance because you're less good at pulling down sugar because your enzymes and processes are focused so highly on mm -hmm. ketosis and fat oxidation. So your argument is that it's not appropriate to necessarily call that insulin resistance has increased. It's mainly a glucose intolerance and you're going to have some adjustment period where glucose is going to be processed and broken down. So when people say this is a physiological insulin resistance, in a way, I kind of resist that. I mean, I can see what they're saying and I'm diplomatic enough to kind of nod along with that. But even yeah. still, a part of me as an insulin resistance scientist who looks at insulin resistance as overwhelmingly a pathological event, I don't like to say carbohydrate restriction causes physiological insulin resistance. I would rather say it causes physiological glucose tolerance. And that may be semantics, but I would argue that's a better definition. But because there are actual states of physiological insulin resistance, such as pregnancy and puberty, those are the two known identified states of physiological insulin resistance where it is not pathological in origin. It's not a result of someone changing to an unhealthy diet. And it is, in fact, serving a genuine physiologic need where with pregnancy and puberty, these are the two exaggerated states of human growth. You know, this is growth at a level, at a stage you just don't see at any other time of life, really, when the woman is actively growing the placenta and the fetus that elevated level of insulin helps promote the growth. I mean, it's stimulating not only lipid accumulation on the mom so that she can have this energy reserve to be prepared to breastfeed, but also growing the, the tissue of the placenta and physically providing this slightly hyperinsulinemic environment for the fetus to stimulate growth. And the same thing goes with puberty, where we're just stimulating this growth because insulin is a growth molecule and it's assisting in the growth. So that to me is true physiological insulin resistance. When if we're saying physiological, that means it's serving a good purpose. Mm -hmm. At least that's what we should mean. In the case of saying ketogenic diet is physiological insulin resistance, I don't think it applies. I don't think it's the same thing. I would prefer that we 
all come to a consensus that I'm right and that it should be called physiological <laughs> glucose intolerance. <laughs> There's a good argument for that, right? Because with true insulin resistance, it's much harder to reshift out of that state versus a temporary period of glucose intolerance. That's I think that. I mean, it seems right. I mean, yeah. we're two rational guys and we agree. So this must be right. <laughs> of course, we know everything. This is Jeff jumping in here to share a really nice HVMN customer testimonial from Matt Walker. He runs a leadership and performance coaching business. Let's listen to what he has to say about Rise and Yawn, our nootropics for memory and nootropic for sleep. I take Rise daily, which really helps keep my energy levels going and keeps them stabilized. It's great. But most importantly, as a husband, father of two kids, and a small business owner, Yawn is what really makes the difference for me. It helps me go to sleep easily. And most importantly, I wake up in the morning feeling refreshed and ready to go without a feeling of hangover. Matt, it's really great to hear how Rise and Yawn are helping you perform your best each and every day. Thanks so much for the kind words. This month's special podcast offer is 15% off our HVMN performance supplements line. Simply visit www.hvmn.com pod to claim the offer. Again, that is hvmn.com pod. This offer ends December 31st, 2018. If you want to submit your own testimonial, just send us a link to your audio testimony to podcast at hvmn.com. Hope to have the chance to shout you out soon. Now back to the podcast. We've kind of full circle here around insulin resistance, your core initial area of research. And it seems to be that idea that insulin resistance is such a core piece of so many diseases. Oh, yeah. You can make the argument that insulin resistance it has huge implications in diabetes, neurological conditions. Like we talked a little bit about glucose uptake dysfunction in case of Alzheimer's, for example, obesity. Maybe some cancers have yeah. some relationship to insulin resistance. And then you look at the historical case where, you know, we've had Carrie Taft on the program and you hear that whole story around, okay, you see sugar spike intake in society and then you see all the modern diseases spike. Again, that's not necessarily a causation argument, but there's some smoke around there. And I've known, you know, some friends in Silicon Valley saying that, you know, insulin resistance is basically the root of all evil. Just curious to get your thought of it. Yeah. So, oh man, I, I'm th I'm just tickled you brought that up. So let me just provide some fun little context. So here I am during the course of my PhD with a wonderful PhD advisor at ECU, East Carolina, named Linus Dome, an insulin resistance guy. And I kept seeing his manuscripts getting published and was so delighted to join his lab and study the changes in insulin resistance pre and post gastric bypass. And even then I move into my postdoctoral fellowship at Duke, this collaborative Duke Medical School, actually in Singapore of all places. So I move my little family to Singapore and I study with another incredible scientist named Scott Summers, again in the realm of insulin resistance and in particularly the biochemical causes. And this whole time, I'm thinking really the only relevance of insulin resistance is type 2 diabetes and then obesity. My thought was obesity is causing insulin resistance, which is causing type 2 diabetes. That was the paradigm. And I never even imagined there was any other directions and arrows here. And mind you, I've come to actually kind of flip those around a bit. But nevertheless, that's what I'm thinking. And then I get hired as a brand new assistant professor at BYU. So we leave Singapore, move back up into the mountains of Utah, which is great for skiing, mind you. And then all of a sudden, I'm teaching a class. The task that my department, the physiology department, asks me to teach a class called pathophysiology. And I'm thinking, what on earth is pathophysiology? You know, I had a lot of physiology background 
in the course of my PhD was a lot of physiology and biochemistry, but all, almost all in the context of metabolic diseases, but nevertheless, very familiar with physiology. And so pathophysiology is the study of the physiological processes when they go wrong, basically, in the explanation and identification mm -hmm. of diseases. And so the class is about 100 nursing and pre-med students. You know, so here I am about to teach a class and they give me a semester to prepare. And I'm thinking, I don't know what causes fatty liver disease. I don't know what causes heart disease. I know insulin resistance. And so in an effort, as I was structuring the class, and I would go through, you know, neurological disorders, I would go through hepatic, you know, liver disorders, musculoskeletal disorders, all just kind of through the body, breaking down the most common diseases and their physiological origins, or when things are going wrong. So pathophysiology, and I'm so desperate to try to speak as an authority on this, because at the time, I'm like one lecture ahead of these kids, you know, I barely know more than they do. <laughs> and I mean, that's the kind of unspoken truth in academia, at least when you start. And generally, you barely know more than your students at the beginning. And I'm so desperate to come across as an authority that I would think, as I was preparing that first semester, I thought, I'm, I'm preparing the neurological disorders lecture, for example. And I'm remembering some conference where someone talked about the link, how type 2 diabetics had significantly greater risk of dementia. And I thought, maybe I can talk a little bit about that. And so I would look in some research there and be amazed. Wow, there's a huge connection between insulin resistance and Alzheimer's disease. And then I'm looking at heart disease. And mind you, that connection is just overwhelmingly as strong. Right. And same thing with fatty liver disease, same thing with musculoskeletal disorders like osteoarthritis and sarcopenia or muscle wasting, same thing with infertility, whether it's ovaries or testes, there's a profound link between altered fertility functions and insulin yeah. resistance. And it just kind of kept going. And yeah. I was amazed and delighted, mind you, because at the end of each one of these different sections, I could do my liver section and talk about liver diseases and then get to the end and talk about the most common liver disease, which is fatty liver disease, and say, hey, and you know what? Let's talk about some of the actual ideology or the processes that cause this and look at how relevant insulin is. And I found that I could kind of basically wrap up almost every one of these topics, do the kind of genuine pathophysiology textbook version of it, and then have it kind of wrap up my way, which is say, hey, insulin resistance is highly relevant. And isn't that great news? Because we can do something about insulin resistance. It is so modifiable so rapidly through lifestyle changes. And that started to really shape the way I appreciated what I once considered some very narrow disorder, insulin resistance, that was only relevant to diabetes. And then suddenly finding that you can take the most common cancers, breast and prostate cancer, yep, strong connection to insulin resistance, yeah. numerous neurological disorders, hepatic disorders, muscle, bone disorders, and seeing that most chronic diseases can be linked at least explicitly to insulin resistance or insulin resistance is exacerbating the condition, which is what I would usually say, like with cancers, insulin resistance is not causing the prostate cancer, but right. it's probably making it worse. It's not causing yeah. the breast tumor but when you think of the average breast tumor has seven times more insulin receptors than the normal breast tissue, that's mm. pretty relevant. And so not only is it more sensitive to the anabolic signaling of the insulin, but hey, in this same situation, you're also often hyperglycemic. And what fuel does cancer cells love prefer the most? Well, glucose. So you're glucose. stimulating the growth and you're fueling the growth. Anyway, cancer is a pretty hot button item and I don't, we don't need to get stuck on that. But you can look at virtually every chronic disease 
some aspect of it will be exacerbated if it wasn't explicitly caused by insulin resistance. The good news of that is when you can take any of these seemingly separate disorders, someone is taking a hypertension medication, they're taking a hyperglycemic medication, they're taking migraine medication, whatever, when they just wonder, could all of this have a common metabolic origin with insulin resistance? I'm going to change my lifestyle to address my insulin resistance. I have seen this happen so often in people, friends and acquaintances, where they get off every one of their medications. And I mean, four or five medications simply because they addressed the one root cause. That's good news for people. And that's one of the reasons I'm so interested to talk about it whenever I can. It's because I want people to know you don't have to be looking at all of these things as different <laughs> as different diseases. They're not different trees. Yeah. They're just branches off the same trunk. That's super exciting. I know that there's interesting discussion around the role of statins. Are they reasonable given if it's a metabolic origin for cardiovascular disease? Is a lipid hypothesis for, again, with statin yeah. treats? Is that the right approach? And then sometimes I catch myself thinking, are we just two in the Kool-Aid? Is the answer so simple or that you have one root etiology for all these conditions? Like I kind of want to pinch myself, be like, okay, what is a skeptical response here? Are we being too neat and too cute here by answering all the disease? Right. I, in fact, I, it is so necessary to say that. I try to be honest enough with myself to ask myself the same question. And in fact, heart disease is a very relevant example. And mind you, there are people who are, could speak much more lucidly and intelligently on that than me. Like Ivor Cummins has devoted much more time to that specific topic yeah. than I have. But even then, so I would say. Insulin is, in each of these disorders we've talked about, it is always relevant. But is it the only relevant disorder? No, absolutely not. In some of them, it is. Like if we take polycystic ovarian syndrome, the most common form of female infertility, yeah. yeah. If you get rid of the insulin, as far as I've seen in the data, you are resolving the problem. Right. You have absolutely corrected the imbalance in androgens and estrogens being produced from the ovaries when you've lowered the insulin. Now, with heart disease or atherosclerosis, is it purely insulin? No, I don't think anyone's going to say that. But I think a lot of us would say, if you're ignoring the insulin, you are ignoring what could be the most relevant variable. And if not the most, one of the most. When I took on this journey of going through the literature, this, it got me personally excited about a ketogenic diet and, and all of that. Because you're like, oh, wow, I got to change my lifestyle. Otherwise, I'm just going to die of all these diseases. But I want to steel man the role of carbohydrate. It doesn't mean we should all use sugars all the time. But what do you think are there appropriate use cases of carbohydrates? So I know if a lot of our customers and a lot of our listeners actually are also professional athletes or athletes trying to improve and break PRs and all of that. And glucose, a necessary anaerobic fuel, a very potent, readily available fuel. So given the context of longevity and health versus performance, is there just like a trade-off there? And I think that might be part of the conversation. Are we optimizing for performance so you can win the Olympics or are you trying to optimize for longevity and, and, yep. and health span? I think there's one dimension there. And then there's a dimension around, is there a way to cycle these things where you use carb strategically and then you use a ketogenic diet strategically or using exogenous ketone strategically to maximize some objective function that matters for you specifically as an individual. I agree with what you said. We really do need to just ask, what is the goal? And I think we can agree that these modern day endurance events are really artificial. Frankly, I don't mean to insult anyone. I have nothing but <laughs> massive respect for the people who do these, right. but they are 
very fake situations. I can say the same thing about my workouts. I'm not really much an endurance guy. I'm much more of a calisthenic. I mean, why do I need to do muscle-ups? That's pretty fake. But I would say maybe it's less fake. At least if I'm stuck in a pit, at least I have to do a muscle-up to get over a fence or, yeah. you know, whatever. How many muscle-ups are you doing in a set? Oh, man, those are so hard. They're fun. Yeah. If I do them in the afternoon when I'm genuinely warmed up, I can do four if I kip, I can add a couple more. I mean, that's pretty humiliating, though, because I always considered myself really good at pull-ups. And then when I turned 40 a couple years ago, I decided to stop weightlifting for a while and just do calisthenics because I'd always wanted to do a freestanding handstand push-up. Always, my whole life. And I thought, I'm 40 years old. It's time to freaking do this thing. And I'm still trying. You know, I can't, I can't keep the balance. But a part of that was also adopting other aspects, like trying to do a planche, trying to do muscle-ups, uh, a back, a front lever. Anyway, anyway, so... Yeah, I, I distracted you there. I was just curious because I, I like doing muscles myself. I think it's a great exercise, yeah. But I think, yeah, we were talking about uh, the role of carbohydrates. Right. How do we incorporate all this yeah. stuff for performance and all of that? In endurance events um, where we have people just running incredible races and incredible events, I would say you probably do need some kind of carbohydrate. And I think even the most ketogenic of these athletes, like let's take Zach Bitter, for example, who just broke the world record for the 100-mile run. He's taking carbohydrate during his event. And he's even taking some of it while he's training. And he's very, very honest about what he takes and what he does. But he's also decidedly a low-carbohydrate, ketogenic kind of guy. And again, I would argue those are very artificial situations where you're creating a need that might not be real. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? And so if we're right. talking about these remarkable feats of human performance, yet we probably have created a need for carbohydrate because we've created uh, argument. a situation. Yeah. In the context of does someone need carbohydrate for longevity, I would absolutely say no. And that's because as I often do with my class, when I first start to present this idea, mind you, I actually try to be diplomatic with my students and I, when I introduce insulin resistance, I say, what can we do? Change the diet to lower insulin. You can do that through a low-fat way. You just, mind you, it's just you have to step away from any processed foods, and you can kind of get to that same point. But nevertheless, when I start to first introduce the low-carb aspect, that can be shocking to some. And I just kind of present the situation. I ask them, can you think of essential amino acids? Are there amino acids a human must eat? Yep, and all 100 of my students are nodding along. Yep, of course. Yep. Are there such things as essential fatty acids? You can already see where I'm going with this. And they're nodding along, 100 nods. And they can begin to see where I'm going with this. And they say, are there essential carbohydrates? No. And people want to say, well, yeah, fiber is yeah. essential. No, it's not. Not at all. Again, that's a very polarizing type of sentiment. But my hope is anyone listening to this, before they want to start throwing potatoes at me, this is a way of getting carbohydrate in my diet. <laughs> Mind you, which I eat carbohydrates anyway. I'm a dad of young kids. Yeah. It's pretty hard not to. I'm not saying someone shouldn't eat carbohydrate. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying I don't think it has any real role in human health or human longevity. And I think we need look no further than the fact that it is not essential. You can truly eliminate that entirely from a human diet, as we have seen done in people, as have been done even in clinical studies with um, Wilhelmer Stephenson, for example, and not only all the rise of all these numerous anecdotes from these keto carnivores today and other human cultures in existence still, we do not need carbohydrate, at least as far as I know. Now, I'm willing to be proved wrong, but the fact that there right. is nothing essential to a dietary carbohydrate, that to me settles it. But I think a natural extension is like, now is that optimal? I don't think so. 
but but that's some speculation simply because until we yeah. have a human study that can truly you know which is impossible right track a ketogenic adherence throughout their whole life and track the low fat semi vegetarian people throughout their whole life who's going to live longer we just don't have those kinds of data right and control that put them in the same kind of family structure same environment same everything yeah exactly yeah. Uh, and someone wants to cite any of the kind of seventh day adventist supported studies looking at, well, the vegetarians, are they living longer versus omnivores? Not when we had studies that controlled for healthy user bias, they, they don't. And moreover, the evidence, admittedly correlational, that suggests in humans that after the age of like 60 or 65, that LDL cholesterol is protective, that the people with higher levels of LDL have better health and better mortality, longer living when LDL goes yeah. up. I would suggest that, mind you, that's not going to prove any point, but as someone's getting further and further away from the essential parts of the diet, which is protein and fat, we can all agree on that. Those are essential. Anyone has to even reluctantly admit that. Those are going to help LDL stay high and <laughs> helps the older person <laughs> which stay Which would shock the standard cardiologists out there. Like, You want to tell people to increase LDL when they're 65, you're crazy. And I'm not necessarily telling someone to do that, but, but the fact is the correlational evidence supports that. Uh, numerous studies find that correlation, but uh, could there be other factors involved? Absolutely. And it may not just be the LDL, but the correlation is pretty strong. I think that's like a, almost an own episode talking about the LDL hypothesis and oh. how that relates to cardiovascular disease and is inflammation or insulin resistance. Is that more of a core driver? And I know yep. that you mentioned Ivory Cummings and some of the other folks have written a lot about that. Yeah, Ivor and Dave, Dave Feldman, I wouldn't be the one to have that conversation. There are other guys who are much yeah. more steeped in that than me. And frankly, you know what? These guys aren't PhDs or MDs. These are what I call the PubMed warriors. They're like software engineers, yeah. The wonderful thing about that is just how egalitarian science has become, that it is so accessible that when like all the stuff that we're kind of kicking around, I think it is so important for someone to know that I did not step lightly into this realm of low carb. It was a very deliberate and kind of uncomfortable journey for me. I was as much an advocate of the pure caloric theory and saturated fat being the devil as anyone. In fact, maybe even more because in my studies, when we were infusing palmitate into rodents and when we were treating muscle cells with palmitate, the kind of prototypical saturated fat, man, we saw some massive insulin resistance start. And, and so I was as much an advocate of this traditional way of thinking as anyone. And then it's simply as I began to appreciate the relevance of insulin in disease more and more and how insulin was driving insulin resistance, you know, elevated insulin, driving insulin resistance, and then driving disease, that started me looking into human clinical studies that were separating patients based on diet. And that was when the whole thing started to kind of crumble. And I had to realize that my own opposition to saturated fat was because of the findings from artificial models where we were explicitly infusing or directly treating saturated fat into these situations. And that is not the same as a human eating saturated fat. That is not analogous. That is not a fair comparison. And so I had to not only realize that flaw in my own findings, but I also had to then be open-minded to what was happening from the whole human physiological perspective, which, shame on me, as a physiologist, I really hadn't been appreciating. So my point in saying all of this is I went through my own journey of saying, okay, I'm not believing any more dogma. 
Whatever I have considered as fact, I'm putting away. And I'm only going to look at what has been published in human clinical studies and nothing else. And that's what took me to the conclusion I've come to, which is hormones matter and controlling carbohydrates to improve the overall metabolic or endocrine milieu elicits a greater metabolic improvement than strictly trying to control calories. That was basically my conclusion in a sentence. And I'm okay if people disagree, especially if they have data, because they can show me a study. Well, and I can say, you know what, that's a good study. Here are my studies. And then we can kind of say, you know what, yep, maybe there isn't a consensus. And the fact that you're tipping more on this side, I'm tipping more on this side, let's shake hands across this subtle divide. But what I have no tolerance for, and this is especially relevant as a professor, when I have my students that will say, Dr. Rick, when I disagree with you, and I say, oh, isn't that just so cute that you think your opinion matters when I'm talking right. about fact, so you can't disagree with this study. You can try to find data to refute it. And until you do so, you darling little undergraduate, as I pat you on the head, and mind you, I love my students, but I just have no tolerance for that kind of sentiment. Right. Don't bring opinion into this. You can't say, I disagree with you. You can find a study that refutes the study that I've shown you. Because I know this is such a sensitive topic, I only ever show my students data. And again, I show the data on both sides of this. I really do. I try to be even-handed. But to me, the sum tips in favor of carbohydrate restriction, at least in the context of improving insulin resistance as a vehicle for improving metabolic health. Mind you, people are listening to this are probably already generally on that side of the fence, if you will. But or let's not say fence, that's too divisive, on that side of the teeter-totter. But this is something people can find. And again, Ivor Cummins and Dave Feldman are such wonderful examples of this. And, and Tucker Goodrich, another guy who's very active on social media, these are guys who don't have the credentials that people classically want to look at. And, and Jeff, I mean, you're a good example of this. These are people who have become deeply familiar with the research, not because their degree made them familiar, but because they just had such a drive and a curiosity to find that out. I submit that's a better way to do it. Because when you have to learn something because your degree, you, you know, you have to to get through your comprehensive exam or your dissertation defense, you're going to learn it. But with that little bit of reluctance, that means you're going to forget it soon after, perhaps. When you have learned it because it's a passion and you just learn to navigate the resources like Google Scholar and PubMed, you can learn it all. And so no one yeah. needs to ever just take me or you at our word. They should challenge this and they should want to know for themselves because then whatever they find, their conviction of how viable and real it is will be so much more. No, I think there's a kind sentiment. I think that is exactly the scientific method. It's not about degrees or credentials. It's about talking about data. And if you have data that proves me wrong, then then we'll follow the data. That it sounds like just coming from how you speak about it, it doesn't sound like you're dogmatic about any one specific point. If there's like a moving body of data that suggests something very different, then there's no reason why I would focus on a ketogenic diet or ketones. If there's new data showing that, that's going to kill me. Like yeah. I'm not trying to be suicidal. And I don't think you are either. That's right. <laughs> and then how has this informed your day-to-day -day lifestyle? Are, are you constantly in ketosis? Are you constantly low carb? Has your research informs your day-to-day -day life? Absolutely. And you know what? When it doesn't, when a scientist hasn't been influenced by their own findings, if it does have physiological relevance to them, then they don't really believe what they've found. To me, that really is just sort of a truism of life. 
that if you have this conviction, this kind of testimony that what you know is real and true, it ought to have altered your behavior. And and I use this example with my students. When I was a a PhD student, a lot of my classes and all of my research was at the medical school. And I would have to bike to the medical school and hospital on the other side of the road because that hospital medical school sidewalk was covered with all the nurses and doctors who were on their smoke break. They would have to leave hospital grounds to smoke. And you know, if that doctor was going to go back into a medical an appointment with a patient and the patient had hypertension and they see the patient smoking one pack a day, the first thing they'd say is, well, you need to really cut back on that smoking. And yet yeah. the hypocrisy as the stench of their own cigarette is wafting into the room with them. No, that's a person who doesn't truly have this conviction. Or maybe you could say, well, that's balanced with some addiction, perhaps. For me, the evidence and my own findings with insulin and now with ketones more recently are so clear and have such a relevance in human physiology that I would not be doing myself justice if I weren't adhering to some of this. So to your question, I am always low carb. That does not mean I'm always in ketosis, of course. And I appreciate that you separated those two things. I'm often in ketosis as frequently as I, as I may check, which isn't that often anymore. It was more often when I first was experimenting. But a part of this is just the practical aspect of me being a dad with young kids. Mind you, my whole family's fairly low carb. Breakfast this morning, for example, was bacon and eggs and nothing but. And my kids, mind you, they reluctantly eat the scrambled eggs, but they gobble up the bacon. So bacon's <laughs> like breakfast dessert for my kids. Yeah. So yeah, very rarely will there be a loaf of bread in my home. Very rarely is there chips and crackers. It's just more real food as much as my wife and I try to do that, which again, with little kids, it's easier said than done. You know what I mean? Right. And, and a part of this is me also being practical as a father in that you know, if we're having family movie night, I'm going to eat popcorn with my kids. Actually, to be honest, not to let anyone indulge too much, I find that popcorn actually doesn't kick me out of ketosis. I can eat a lot that <laughs> night in movie night for family movie night. And I'm well into ketosis the next morning. Nevertheless. Metabolically flexible. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that is a perk of, mind you, controlling yeah. um, carbohydrates. Uh, but when my daughter made dinner for the family and wanted to make grilled cheese sandwiches, I always use this example. I'm not going to pick the cheese off my daughter's sandwich. So, oh, daddy. <laughs> Yeah, sweetheart, daddy can't eat the bread, sweetheart. So I'm just going to eat the cheese. No, that's crazy. I'm going to eat my daughter's grilled cheese sandwich and I'm going to smack my lips and give her a hug and kiss for making it. So I would say I'm a very practical low-carb guy where when I can adhere to a low-carb diet and it won't, especially in any way, kind of affect my family dynamic, I'm going to do it. And that means breakfast and lunch for me are always low-carb. Always. There's never an excuse for me to not be low carb at breakfast and lunch. It's just so easy. Even if my kids have this very rare indulgence, sometimes make this buckwheat rice mix and they can eat it with milk and cinnamon. I won't eat that. I either am fasting that breakfast or I'm eating something else, you know, but breakfast and lunch are always low carb. And then dinner is often low carb, but it kind of just depends on what the family's doing. I don't want it to adversely impact the family dynamic where my whole family's eating something and I'm just sitting there watching the meat, you know. You mentioned fasting. I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on some of Sachin Panda's work with circadian rhythms and fasting. Do you sort of incorporate that as well into your personal routine? So, you know, to give you a sense of my general protocol, I'll cycle in and out of strict ketogenic diet. And then I'll usually have a pretty tight eating window and I'll do around like a 24, 36 hour weekly fast. So I'll do a blend of fasting, low carb diet, and then cycling in and out of like a strict ketogenic diet. 
Yeah, that's, that's kind of my, the pattern that kind of works well for my lifestyle. I, I do the exact same thing, exact same. Um, it's often I'll do a 24-hour fast weekly, and that's typically on a Monday, frankly, where I find the weekend just having that outside of my normal routine and, and being around the family a little more, I do tend to indulge a little more. Although I hate to say it like that, like the Monday, because it almost is sort of uh, reminiscent of a kind of eating disorder where it's like this binge and purge. But right. I don't think that's what it is. Well, if it is, at least I'm justifying it, which is maybe terrible. I've heard that comparison with some reporters. They think it's like an eating disorder. But I think my snippy comment back is that everyone being obese and overeating is an eating disorder. Oh, no kidding. No kidding. Right? So yeah. just like, I think it's like, we're just trying to be sensible here in terms of just, if we're going to be repleting with plenty of glucose over the weekend, yep, if you're getting beers or all that, yep. it is called sensible to deplete some of that glucose, that stored glycogen. I would just reopen the conversation. So I would argue against that eating disorder to kind of poke at this because it's just, a, I think, a more sensible, enlightened way of consuming. Yeah, I agree. I guess I'm disclosing that as a possibility because I can see how it's low-hanging fruit where someone just says, ah, right. oh, well, you're doing well, just what I basically just said. So I can see how some, mind you, I'd actually never heard anyone else say that. So in a way, it is kind of validating that someone else would have that perspective, yeah. even if they're using it as fuel against a low-carb diet. You're right, though. It's obviously a lot better than what other people are doing, but I do it for the exact reason you just said. I have, to a degree, loaded my liver back up with glycogen, I just want to empty that back out um, to help my body get back into a lipid fat oxidation mode as quickly as possible. And I find I also just appreciate the simplicity of a fast where I just tell myself I don't have to make decisions about food for the next 24 hours. It is, in fact, I've heard a lot of people describe this when they do multi-day fasts, which is something I've never really embraced. In fact, well, I haven't at all, um, but I can at least intellectually embrace other people doing it. Yeah. I really appreciate the simplicity where it just eliminates some of the decision-making for the day where it is I'm drinking water. And typically for me, right. when I am doing a 24-hour fast therapeutically, now I also do it for a religious reason once a month as a member of my church, but that's different. When it is for this metabolic benefit, I will drink water and I'm often just spiking in a little hint of apple cider vinegar. And that's not as much for metabolic boost as, although the apple cider vinegar may in fact do that, but I do it because I just like the flavor. It just helps me keep drinking water. I've really yeah. come to appreciate that little bit of tart. So typically on a Monday, it's not uncommon depending on the weekend and just kind of depending on how I'm feeling, I may or may not do a fast through Monday. But even then, it really is just to seek this metabolic advantage of getting myself back into a lower level of liver glycogen and all the perks that come with that, which is ketosis and um, lipid oxidation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like I got to get you to experiment with a longer fast. The longest fast I've ever done was a seven-day fast, oh, which man, was no, I can't kind of a religious experience in of, in of itself. But I mean, I think we could go on for another hour if you had the time. So I want to wrap up with one last question. Jeff, but before, one of the reasons I've been reluctant for multi-day fast is I look at myself and think, all right, I'm a middle-aged man whose main physical priority, as oddly as this sounds, with three little kids, I got a long game in mind. And my priority is I want to be a healthy grandpa. And so I'm thinking, yep. what's going to help my health span? And that's going to be maintaining as much lean mass as I can. And so right. with that kind of as a priority, maintain lean mass, I have huge respect for Dr. Jason Fung. And, and he really yes. does insist that there really mm -hmm. isn't this loss of muscle mass. And again, I really respect what he's saying, but yet the academic in me thinks, well, that's impossible. How can there not be some muscle mass. And I bet if he ever listened to this, he'd be already thinking of numerous mechanisms and people want to invoke growth hormone being up. But 
Yet yeah. I still think at the end of the day, if you are in genuine caloric restriction, how can the body not be expending some lean mass to fuel the body? I mean, it happens. And so my reluctance in a multi-day fast is simply because I just really shudder at the thought of losing lean mass when I'm working so darn hard to keep it, you know? <laughs> no, I agree. And I think likewise, when I was doing some of these longer fast experiments, part of it is in terms of, just, yeah, I want to maintain my lean muscle tissue, obviously. And I think I was about to just reference Jason Fung and he sort of convinced me around the notion of, on these longer day fasts, that the nitrogen that you excrete out of your urine actually falls precipitously. Mm, so right. You start conserving. From, from that perspective, you conserve your protein mass and then you reference the growth hormone spike that he's actually has working with some athletes that he's trying to time the growth hormone spike with heavier workouts. Uh, so clever. his kind of story is that to gain muscle or to maintain muscle, you work out. And so when I was doing these longer fasts, I was working out fasted. Yeah. Uh, so it was like lifting heavy, which I actually maintained decent amount of strength doing lifts, but I just felt like I couldn't run. Like my aerobic performance felt really, really bad. Yeah. And then this is not super scientific, but I was doing a DEXA scan before and after a seven day fast and a weekly 36 hour fast for about a two month period. And again, there's, a lot of data and a lot of time span there, but I actually saw increased lean muscle tissue and reduced body fat composition. So I had a very similar concern as you where I don't want to be melting lean tissue. It takes all this effort to lift all these weights, do all these calisthenics, do all these muscle ups. They build up some muscle. I don't want to just be burning that away. And frankly, Jason is a smart enough guy, and I, I mean that, uh, uh, that, that it doesn't surprise me that he would have some justification and evidence to support that. It, it doesn't surprise me. I guess even hearing it, a part of me just sort of revolts at the idea. I don't do it that often. I mean, that last time I did it was about almost two years ago now. I'm not like necessarily trying to do this all the time. It's more of a just a N equals one experiment just yeah. to get a sense of yeah. how it kind of feels like. And then of course, there's like sort of the longevity story in terms of kind of Walter Longo's research around can you recycle your immune system and all of that stuff. I think it's worth mentioning that when people invoke a lot of the benefits of calorie restriction and with Walter Longo, perhaps protein restriction more specifically, right. With all due respect, as scientists, part of me can help but wonder, well, what happens when you continue to fuel the body with sufficient calories and yet you've simply lowered insulin? You know, mm. that to me is the low-hanging fruit that some people have addressed in rodent studies. And in the human studies, people aren't quite as willing to acknowledge that, hey, you know what, maybe it's not so much protein restriction, it's magic. It could just be that we're restricting insulin activation. And that, to me, one of the strong, as we've already been kind of talking about, I don't do a ketogenic diet because I care as much about the ketones. Although over time, as I continue to do experiments with ketones, I can appreciate them more and more as viable, beneficial molecules for the body. But my main motivation is keeping insulin in control for every reason, including longevity, because so many of the longevity studies are kind of skirting around this issue of it's just simply lowering the insulin. And yeah. so to me, I've not seen good evidence to refute that that may in fact be the mechanism of longevity. It's not the protein restriction. I'm glad you brought that point up. I think a lot of the caloric restriction benefits, I agree with you. I think it's basically a lowering of insulin story. And the caloric restriction is kind of this mechanism of lowering insulin. But what if you could just do that directly without being calorically restricted with a ketogenic diet or something, right? Yeah, that's the magic. And apparently in the primate studies that showed that 
like there was comparing caloric restriction in like a healthy diet versus caloric restriction in like an artificial high sugar diet. And the one result showed that there was no change of lifespan but with a calorically restricted healthy diet versus a healthy diet for these primates and the calorically restricted unhealthy diet versus had an improved lifespan versus uncalorie restricted unhealthy diet, which I think harkens back to the point yeah. that you were talking about that perhaps it's really the insulin as right. the driver here, not the calorie story. I would say before we leave that topic, could there be a separate immune function or immune aspect of fasting? And, and I would say there could be, and I bet that is actually through altered gut bacteria. When you've done, basically, we uh, know that the gut bacteria, the whole microbiome, I say we know, and I, I think we know, I believe that basically kind of turns over every three days. And so when you've gone beyond like a three-day fast, Huh, that's an interesting theory. I've never heard of that before. You basically starved all of your gut bacteria, and now you have given the growing appreciation of gut bacteria and immune health, let alone gut bacteria and neurological health. There could be something to fasting and specifically immune changes that go beyond insulin control and has to do more with what have we done to the gut bacteria in this prolonged fast, where if they aren't getting that roughage or something and I don't just mean roughage from fiber because even carnivores have gut bacteria, but you have maybe changed the whole microbiome, maybe literally changed all of it because they're starting from scratch because you've killed off yeah. all the other stuff that had been in there because they literally couldn't eat for however many days. So some of the immune benefit may be partly a function of this genuine shift in microbiome that is because of the fasting itself. But then any of the other longevity benefits I think the big elephant in the room, the confounding variable is, well, what happened to insulin? That is a primary driver. If I had to put a percentage on it, I think it's probably the, the dominant factor there. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to wrap up with the final question. What areas of research are you most excited about? You're looking at a lot of around ketones, looking a lot on insulin. What can we expect in 2019 coming out of your group? What do you think are the most promising areas of research? The obvious one that I think will have the biggest impact uh, well, at least uh, my own thinking, is the one I mentioned earlier, which is the evidence that we're finding and hopefully will get published this next year of ketones providing this boost in metabolic rate via increased adipocyte mitochondrial uncoupling. So basically turning the white fat of subcutaneous tissue, making it more like so-called brown fat, and then that more mitochondria and they're more uncoupled. However, perhaps the other kind of most exciting area is what we're finding with neural plasticity, which is kind of biochemical corollary or surrogate, I should say, of learning, the ability to learn and create new thoughts, learning new, new skills, retaining new information. What we do in this model is we take the rat brain and make these slices. And I'm doing this as a collaboration with my colleague, Jeff Edwards, who's the brain guy. It actually started with this idea of me saying, can we keep brain tissue viable when we eliminate all the glucose, right? Because there's always this question that you can never answer in an in vivo situation, which is, does the yeah. brain actually need glucose or is it just using it right. because it's there? We know that with long fasting and even I would say a ketogenic diet, there's always some glucose. We always have glucose, so the brain's always pulling in some, but it shifts to a majority of beta-hydroxybutyrate as its fuel. Right. And so there's this predominant shift to ketones, but then the question still lingers, but does the brain need the glucose, or is it just using it because it's there? So that was part of the original thought here. Can we keep the brain tissue viable in the absence of glucose, maintaining all the osmotic gradients, and just using ketone as a fuel? And the short answer so far is yes, actually. That's cool. Uh, but independent of that, 
we're measuring this neuroplasticity, which is one of Jeff kind of one of his bread and butter techniques. The classic kind of bath when we put these brain slices in this solution to try to mimic an in, an in vivo setting, it is a very high glucose setting, which is which is very standard for almost any ex vivo or in vitro conditions. It's always high glucose. And, and so what we're doing here now is just cutting down the glucose and increasing the ketones to a situation that you would see in fasting, you know, kind of this kind of three to one or four to one type ratio. And what we see is that the neuroplasticity is enhanced. We're seeing a significant improvement in these outcomes, suggesting that the brain, at least with these assays, measuring neuroplasticity is working better when it's fueled with ketones. And this certainly fits with the idea of people with cognitive decline thriving when ketones are up. We see this in humans. There's very little debate on that. It's quite obvious evidence. This is providing a bit of a molecular mechanism. So it's pretty exciting. But because I'm not the brain guy and Jeff is, that's my second most exciting. I like the adipose mitochondrial story a little more, but they're both pretty provocative. (laughs) When they're out, I mean, that's going to shake up some of the scenes. I think those are pretty astounding results. That's really cool. Yeah, it's fun. I think there's a lot of interest with the neurological. Can you improve cognition? from a therapeutic side and also from an enhancement side. It was also very interesting to a lot of our listeners out here. And Jeff, you know what? That's I'll say that is the beauty of being a scientist. It is the glory of just getting paid to ask questions. I mean, think how cool that is. I get paid to just ask questions. So if I'm not teaching my class in any given day, I can just sit back in my office and ask myself a question for eight straight hours and try to find an answer, then come to the conclusion, okay, no one's answered this, let's answer it if we can. (laughs) Mind you, there's not a lot of money in being curious, so scientists don't get paid too much, but it's a glorious thing. What we lack in salary, we make up for in just true intellectual freedom to just get paid to ask questions. And these two questions are the result of just me and some students shrugging our shoulders and saying, has anyone asked this yet? No one has, let's do it. This conversation is going to engender a lot of questions from our audience here. So Good. we're going to definitely have to bring you back on the program to answer those questions. Thanks so much. This is actually a really fun, discursive conversation. I mean, clearly a lot of shared interests here and appreciate your depth and nuance in exploring these topics with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Jeff, thanks for the opportunity to talk. I really enjoyed it. And like you said, having this common intellectual ground always makes for a very fun conversation, especially when it's grounded with some justified evidence. All right. Thanks, Professor. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. Remember to check out www.hvmn.com slash pod for this month's special podcast offer. For December 2018, that offer is 15% off our entire HVMN performance supplements line. This is the perfect holiday gift for your friends, family, or even just treating yourself. Are you interested in getting $15 worth of HVMN store credit that you can use on our website? Submit a written review on our iTunes page and send that screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com. Our podcast email line is always open for your suggestions, feedback, and questions. Until next week, friends, stay sharp and train smart.